We'll uh, go ahead and get started. Um, thank you all for coming. We're going to have some more walk-ins, I know, uh, shortly. Um, uh, consumer privacy, online privacy has become a bigger and bigger issue uh, in technology, um, uh, amongst technology issues, particularly in the last couple of years. Last year, at least six different uh, privacy bills were introduced in Congress, all with different aims, uh, different takes, and different um, uh, methods of trying to uh, regulate uh, online privacy. Um, at the same time, the FTC uh, last year launched a, uh, a released a study basically calling on Congress to pass uh, some sort of legislation to deal with the quote-unquote crisis of, um, of consumer privacy online. Um, and we saw, uh, we see it continuously bubble up, uh, such as a slap on the wrist that Google recently received um, with privacy issues. So we decided that we thought it would be good to hold a panel uh, just before Congress gets started uh, to see if any legislation was going to be introduced on the issue uh, and head off maybe some attempts by trying to call some people down and say, hey, what is a rational response uh, to, this, to this privacy quote-unquote crisis? Um, so we have two guests with us today. Um, uh, speaking first is going to be Larry Downs, who is a very well-known uh, author and analyst of the um, the internet industry. Um, he is uh, an author uh, of multiple books, including Unleashing the Killer App and Laws of Disruption, uh, both of which I highly recommend. Um, and Laws of Disruption in particular deals with the ways in which um, uh, laws or legal frameworks that are established uh, around technology issues um, are, tend to be outpaced by the technology itself, uh, amongst other ideas. Um, uh, following Larry, we're going to have uh, Jim Harper, who's the Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Um, he focuses on issues including privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. He was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee, um, and he has written a number of books himself, including a, a very recent one, um, Terrorizing Ourselves. Um, uh, we're primarily going to be focusing on a recent paper that came out uh, from the Cato Institute, which you can find outside. Um, we can also happily send around electronic versions um, named uh, aptly uh, after the uh, we named our panel after it, A Rational Response to the Privacy Crisis, uh, from Larry. So we'll kick it off with uh, Larry Downs for a little bit, and then uh, Jim Harper, and then uh, we'll take some uh, Q&A uh, about any questions uh, you might have uh, going forward. Larry. Great. Well, thank you very much. And I want to give particular thanks to the Cato Institute for publishing this paper. It's a somewhat uh, eccentric style for policy analysis, and uh, I, I really appreciate them working with me uh, to, uh, to, to get it in usable form. Uh, so as Kelly mentioned, when I, uh, actually I'm going to speak more from my first book than my last book, because when I think about the privacy problem, and, and, and I think about it both from a business standpoint and from a policy standpoint, uh, I see it as one of these squishy problems that takes me back uh, to the work I did in the 1990s, uh, long before I was really even interested in policy issues, but more thinking about how technology disruption was affecting traditional businesses. And the chart that I have up here is actually from uh, talks I used to give in the, in the late 1990s on the, uh, the killer app phenomenon that, uh, that came out of the book. Uh, and one of the sort of central observations that, uh, that I had in the 90s was 
that uh, technology, thanks to things like Moore's Law, which makes computers faster and cheaper and smaller all the time and indeed at, a, at an exponential pace, not at an incremental pace, uh, that that phenomenon, which continues to this day, uh, leads to this sort of gap. And I uh, termed it in the 90s the killer app gap, where I said that, uh, you know, as technology advances more quickly than human systems can adapt, and the human systems, I was thinking particularly of business, but also social, economic systems, and, and increasingly uh, in my later work, legal systems, uh, there is an opportunity for uh, mischief or unintended consequences that gets broader and broader. And this uh, observation in later years has led me to what I then refer to in both books, but particularly in, in the most recent book, as the law of disruption. Uh, and the law of disruption said, you know, essentially what I just said, which is that social, economic, political, legal systems change incrementally, but technology changes exponentially. And in the gap uh, between them, particularly when we're dealing at the edge of disruptive technologies, uh, it's very natural. In fact, it's, uh, it's entirely predictable that human beings, all of us, will have a kind of a, a creepy response to things that are particularly uh, edgy or particularly disruptive in terms of technology. Uh, and the, the, the problem is, if when we talk about privacy, in particular we talk about legislating or regulating around privacy, and I'm here I'm speaking extremely broadly, but the problem here is that the creepy response almost uh, by definition is one that's not rational. Uh, it is an emotional response, it's a, it's a visceral response. Uh, I don't think we should ignore it, I don't think we should pretend it doesn't exist because it's natural, as I say, but it makes it very difficult to have debate, to have sort of rational conversation. Uh, from a lawmaking or regulatory standpoint, it makes it very hard to be deliberative. That's, that's the way we like to approach these problems because everybody's kind of freaked out. Uh, and uh, and it, you know, it happens to all of us. And uh, so what I was trying to do and I, I hope to do with the paper was say, well, uh, what's a sort of rational way to deal with the, with the emotional response that we have? How can we understand it and frame it and recognize when it's happening so that we don't uh, do things that later we'll regret, that will lead to these uh, unintended uh, consequences. Because in some ways, almost by definition, if you act, if you legislate or regulate or change your business plans uh, in the traditional sense, uh, while you're having a visceral response, uh, you're very likely to have a suboptimal result and in many cases a, a counterproductive result. And my structure in the, in the paper was to try to put information exchanges more generally, and I think, you know, when we talk about privacy, one of the big problems, as we all know, is that no two people really mean the same thing when they are talking about private information. So I tried to talk about information exchanges or personal information much more generally, much more broadly, and to consider those exchanges as if they were filling in some kind of uh, economic system. So there's some kind of economic exchange going on. And of course, if you think about it, there are billions of these kind of exchanges of, of personal information that happen all the time. We just got introduced. Uh, that was an exchange. You, you got some personal information about me. You got some personal information about Jim. Um, at this point, well, we didn't get any personal information back, but there's a lot of context. I know from where you're sitting in the room, and I can see your name cards and so on. Uh, there's exchanges going on uh, even as we speak. And I think one of the things to note, too, is that, again, very broadly, a lot of those exchanges that happen are not the kind that we're talking about necessarily when we talk about legislative or regulatory problems. Those are usually, you know, the bills that are circulated have to do largely with 
the exchange of information between businesses and consumers or businesses and their customers. But of course, the bulk of information exchanges that happen on a daily basis are personal exchanges between individuals, between uh, you know, people we see at work or our family members or our Facebook friends or our Twitter followers. Uh, those, of course, are also information exchanges, and they, too, have an underlying kind of economic structure, even if there's not any actual physical exchange of, of money going on. And then, of course, there are some exchanges, and we will largely exclude them from this conversation, but we should note the other kind that are, that are uh, particularly problematic are exchanges between governments and their citizens. Uh, and in, you know, in the U.S., we have sort of constitutional structures that determine what kinds of exchanges can and can't happen in that regard and how they can happen, the Fourth Amendment and so on, uh, affects that as well. But those two are a kind of information exchange and, again, of an underlying economic structure. Uh, so what I tried to do in the paper was to, to try to get some context around this creepiness response or what we call the creepy factor to, uh, to new disruptive technologies or new services uh, by particularly putting them in the context of their historical roots. And again, now here I'm speaking very specifically to the U.S. I think the European and the uh, uh, Far East uh, experience of information exchanges is very different. But in the U.S., we, we have this uh, remarkable sort of uh, long-standing conflict that we live out every day in our, in our minds between two very powerful cultural forces. Uh, on the one hand, we have kind of the, the Puritan or Calvinist tradition uh, that is, you know, if you sort of think about the classic novel, The Scarlet Letter, which if you didn't read it, you, you read the Cliff Notes uh, in high school. Uh, it really described kind of uh, the way in which uh, Puritan communities existed in a form of really kind of ultra-transparentness. Everybody knew absolutely everything about everybody else. So there was really no sense of privacy the way we understand it today uh, in kind of the, 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 the Puritan, particularly in, in, uh, in Calvinist uh, communities. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, we have a competing culture in the U.S., the frontier mentality, and this was the idea that as you moved west, you were able to, uh, you know, essentially reinvent yourself, take on a new personality, uh, live that kind of life of rugged individualism, very, very private uh, if you wanted to be, or indeed you could in some ways invent the information about yourself, uh, reinvent yourself uh, as every time you moved, you know, another couple of hundred miles west, you could take on a a particularly a, a new persona and, and, and start your, your life over again. And I think what happens is as we come into conflict with kind of new uh, technology, so really, you know, think about your latest example, every change that happens on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or other kind of leading edge personal information exchange technologies, uh, we engage that conflict uh, in our own minds. And the, the creepy factor, as I see it, is uh, sort of that, that frontier response. The initial response is, uh, you know, hey, man, don't fence me in. You know, whatever you're doing, uh, you're, you're impinging on my freedom of movement. Even if I can't quite articulate how, uh, I don't like it. And at some point, depending partly on what the nature of the change is, uh, eventually, or sometimes sooner rather than later, the Puritan Calvinist side of the, of the equation kind of kicks in and we say, well, 
I'm getting used to this. Uh, I see the value of this. Uh, you know, in one sense, one of the values of a transparent society is that it makes it much easier, therefore, from an economic standpoint, much more efficient to conduct information exchanges and whether those are decision whether to lend you money, whether to get married to you, uh, whether or not to, what was my third good example here, oh, to offer you a coupon based on your previous purchases, all those sorts of decisions about whether or not to transact can be done much more efficiently the more relevant information that I have. And so eventually, in many cases, not all cases, by the way, we can think of uh, many new kind of technological innovations that were either introduced too soon or just weren't introduced well, and consumer response was negative enough that, in fact, it killed the, the products. So you think about Google Buzz, um, poorly introduced, uh, and you know, kind of raised that creepy factor so high that eventually the, the product just died. But by and large, we adapt, uh, sometimes more quickly than, than not, and we come to see the, the kind of Calvinist value of the information exchange versus the, the sort of uh, the, the knee-jerk uh, frontier response, which is the, the creepy one. Of course, the real risk here that's relevant is that there is a risk to, to, to legislate or regulate while we're still kind of our frontier brain is engaged and while we're still experiencing that emotional, visceral creepiness response. Uh, and uh, likely, of course, is if we leave it alone, often for not very long, uh, market forces uh, will play out. And again, either consumers will adapt, uh, they, may they may demand changes to the nature of the offering or the change in the service contract, as we saw recently with, uh, with Instagram. Uh, they may reject it altogether, in which case, you know, the, the people vote with their feet and the product dies anyway. Uh, or we just accept it. We learn to think, well, that you know, the, the timeline change on Facebook looked really weird, but six months later we don't remember what the old one looked like anymore and, and, and you know, it doesn't really bother us anymore. Uh, Gmail, if you may remember when it first came out and the, it was, uh, the idea was that you would get the free email service in exchange for uh, software reading through the contents of the mail and posting contextual advertisements, that was very creepy. Uh, lots of calls for it to be uh, to be banned uh, when first released. Well, now there's still some holdouts, people who won't use it for that reason. But by and large, millions of us have sort of accepted that and understand that, of course, there's not some army of people over at Google who are uh, reading our mail. It's really all software, and and uh, and nobody really cares, uh, frankly, <laughs> what we're doing or not. The um, the last section of the paper, uh, I try to look at a couple of different models that have been proposed for how to think uh, kind of in a structural way, what, what framework we might use when we think about when it's appropriate to intervene or, or to, uh, to, to regulate information exchanges, how we should think about those, again, from an economic standpoint. And I look at two particular models in particular. One is what you might think of as the property model, where we think of uh, personal information, and similar to the way we think about copyrighted material or patented material. It's a kind of information we, uh, we kind of impose a sense of property on it, we assign ownership rights, and then we have a system for licensing or, or assigning or reassigning those property rights uh, accordingly. And this kind of the, the, the phrase that keeps coming up in that context is uh, that consumers own their own information. So that they own it in the property sense, and then it's their own information in the sense of is there's some subset of information that somehow uh, is uh, so intrinsically about me that, uh, again, this is where we don't have good definitions, but we, I own it. I don't quite know what that means. 
The second model that I look at is a, a related but I think much more valuable way of looking at it, and that's a licensing model where we never actually come down and say, yes, you know, at the moment of creation of, of new information, there's somebody who owns it, whether it's the person to whom it refers or the person who first puts it in a usable form. Uh, we say, let's not even, you know, deal that. There's no ownership. There's no assignment. There's no selling or a reassignment of the actual information itself, but there's more of a licensing model that says, well, a lot of the information that we're talking about here is in some ways jointly uh, produced. It may be because it refers to multiple people. I have a great example in the paper about a, a wonderful uh, case that I, uh, I worked on many years ago as a legal clerk where a book was written uh, and it, you know, told a lot of sort of personal details of a married couple's uh, life in the context of the migration of African Americans from the north to, from the south to the north. And uh, the, the wife, the ex-wife, was a full participant in the production of that book. The ex-husband, on the other hand, sued to block the, the uh, publication of the book. And the question really came down to, well, who, when we say you own your own information, in that case, all the information was kind of jointly owned, if you were talking about it from a property model, and sort of separating out, well, you know, does the wife have the right to publicize what she thought was important, or does the husband have the right to veto that publication? Um, that's, I think, where the ownership model falls down and where a licensing model says, well, they both have ownership interests uh, and, in fact, also so does the reporter who kind of turned it into a, a usable form of information, put the context around it, put it in this larger perspective and said, here's why it's valuable to know about this particular set of people because their experience represents or stands in for a, a much larger set of issues, again, that get uh, very deeply to, to public policy. I think the other problem, the reason I, in the paper, reject the property model outright is, of course, that, that when we talk about uh, copyrights and patents for, for whatever uh, their value is, they obviously uh, are themselves under a lot of scrutiny. Uh, there's a lot of doubt as to how useful the metaphor of property is working today in the digital age for traditional things that we thought of as copyright and, and patentable material. And so in some ways the metaphor has been strained, some might say strained beyond repair, but in any event it's certainly strained and, and in some ways there's a lot of baggage that goes along with uh, intellectual property uh, as, a, as a legal concept and there's really not, it's not helpful to now kind of import that onto uh, to the sort of space of personal information. So what I uh, ultimately come down to in the paper is an argument in favor of more of a licensing model, much more flexible, uh, and in fact, not surprisingly, it's the model in, in effect that's working today, sometimes very implicitly, but sometimes explicitly. And I think the example I give of the, of the best way in which that, that model works with minimal transaction costs, everybody kind of sharing the value of mutual creation and mutual use is uh, the loyalty card that you have at your supermarket, where is, you know, in exchange for letting them swipe the card and therefore being able to say, ah, these particular grocery purchases were made by this person who lives in this zip code who is, you know, male or female, in exchange for letting them uh, associate that set of demographic information with your particular purchases, you get a discount on the, on the food or the whatever you're buying, and they get valuable marketing information that tells them you know, when to stock things more or what things go together or what things uh, they might want to offer a coupon for to try and switch you from one brand to another or from one product to another. And in some sense, there's an there's a economic transaction that happens every time you decide, yes, that 7% discount is worth 
uh, allowing them to, you know, associate this uh, personal information, maybe it's not private, but certainly personal information, with this particular transaction. And the nice thing about it is when that happens, you know, there, there's not a team of lawyers standing around the checkout counter negotiating back and forth, uh, adding kind of transaction costs to the equation, but in fact it happens uh, millions of times a day, very minimal transaction costs, the, you know, the, there is a contract, but it doesn't have to, no one else looks at it unless there's something goes horribly wrong, which, you know, generally speaking, isn't going to happen in this context. So it's a very, you know, easy way of doing it and everybody, I think, getting value. In, some, in this case, you get very clear, you know, you look at the bottom of the bill and you know exactly what the value was that you got for giving up that information and, you know, for the, for the stores and for the manufacturers of the product, it's a, it's a, it's a more complicated trans, uh, transaction and more complicated calculation that they can make. Uh, I end the paper with some recommendations on ways, both from a sort of self-regulatory standpoint and from a legal standpoint, that that licensing model can be improved. It's not perfect. Uh, and, uh, but I think rather than go into that, I'm just going to leave it there and uh, sort of, you know, point to those recommendations in the paper itself. And I recommend the paper to you. Uh, it should be no surprise, uh, being the guy at Cato who oversaw its publication, that I endorse it. But, uh, but a real reason why I endorse it, because when I read it, and it didn't, it didn't come as a surprise to me, but when I read it, I thought to myself, ah, Larry gets it. Larry gets privacy. And, and I worry sometimes that that might make two of us. I'm, I know there are many more. <laughs> but, uh, but a lot of people are still, still struggling with the basic concept. What are we talking about? And Larry, I think accurately, Larry described it as a squishy problem. When you're presented, and this is actually why I started working with, on privacy longer ago than I care to mention, I saw uh, on the Hill uh, uh, proposals being introduced and in the regulatory agencies, regulations moving forward to regulate in the name of privacy without the sense that these institutions had a sense of what they were actually getting at. Um, so it's a squishy problem. It's often articulated to the extent you can call it articulation as responding to creepy behavior. Uh, it's really, really hard to put in law something that stops creepy behavior because nobody knows exactly what that is. And so a lot of the proposals you see on Capitol Hill, unfortunately, still are misdirected, poorly directed, have the moniker privacy attached to them, even though they might be, might be attacking other interests, trying to, trying to promote or protect other interests. Um, work that I've done over the, over the years on privacy, uh, I've tried to uh, articulate the very different interests that are at stake when people are using the word privacy. Uh, it's a squishy word, I suppose you could say, but there may be a half dozen different things people are talking about when they say privacy. One of them, and I think it's probably the most important sense, at least when we're talking about the internet, internet and the information age, is control of information about oneself. I've offered up a, a, a sort of uh, maybe technical legal uh, definition of the word privacy. Uh, privacy is the uh, subjective condition a person enjoys when they have the power to control information about themselves legally and when they exercise that power consistent with their interests and values. That is knowing what to do in order to protect information in the way that serves you best. I won't go through and parse all that, uh, all of what that means, but it comes down to does a person have legal power to control information and they, do they know what to do in order to advance their values. We're very good at it in meat space, in, in ordinary life, because we were raised um, by our parents from, from birth to know what to do. Culturally, we figured out that you put clothes on in the morning, not only to maintain the temperature of your body in, a, in the best possible way, but to, to hide the appearance of your body, consistent with our customs and, and our values. So you didn't think about it this morning when you got dressed, but it looks like 
to a person, every one of you took the privacy protective steps that we all do in the, in the physical environment. Not all of you know enough, because you weren't trained and the, and the culture isn't there yet, uh, to protect your privacy online similarly. When you're, when you're traversing the online world, you might be revealing things that in, in better judgment you wouldn't be revealing. But mostly it's an educational problem and not a power problem. That is, you don't know how to do it. It's not that somebody is stealing from you. It's not that, uh, that laws are barring you uh, from taking steps to protect your privacy in the control sense. But there are other senses of privacy that people, people mean uh, but sometimes agglomerating them all together. For example, fairness. Sometimes people talk about it as a privacy problem when information that is available is used unfairly. There's a poorly written algorithm. The data is uh, stale as opposed to the, the currency that you need in a, particular, in a particular decision. So think of credit reporting. Uh, think of other, uh, other systems that use personal information to make decisions about people, whether they're very, very important decisions, such as whether a person will be stopped at the airport, or very, very unimportant decisions, such as whether a person will get a piece of mail uh, in the mailbox or uh, be, be um, uh, given a coupon when they check out at the checkout counter. I have a paper that was on the desk out there about the Fair Credit Reporting Act and assessing 40 years of fair credit reporting law and whether it, uh, it, it achieved the, the goals that its author set out for it. When it, was first, when it was first written. That's essentially the fairness dimension of privacy. Uh, privacy is also sometimes about security, personal security. Uh, you may be familiar or have heard of the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, which is a federal law, and it joins uh, perhaps 50 state privacy protection acts uh, for drivers. Uh, this was, th these laws were written because uh, many years ago an actress named Rebecca Schaefer uh, was stalked by a uh, uh, a man and and he went to the Department of Motor Vehicles in California, asked them for their for her address, and the DMV gave it to him. He went to her he went to her house and and at her house killed her. Uh, a very shocking incident that that caused the passage of these laws, Drivers Privacy Protection Act, so that DMVs wouldn't give out information like that. It's a privacy law, but its main motivation was to protect people's personal security. People are also often talking about seclusion when they say the word privacy. That is being let alone. So you may recall the do not, uh, do not call regulations that came out of the uh, Federal Trade Commission some years ago. Apparently the most popular uh, regulation the federal government has ever issued, uh, perhaps rising to, to a low bar. But, uh, but uh, this, was, this reflected the fact that people didn't want to receive telephone calls, have their lives intruded upon during the dinner hour. Um, and so people responded to that very strongly. That privacy regulation was really about seclusion, being left alone. Calls often come in at the dinner hour, that kind of thing, spam email, uh, because the person trying to reach you knows nothing at all about you. Quite different from other, other senses of privacy in which, which precise and correct personal information is in question. Finally, there's the liberty or autonomy uh, dimension of privacy. Uh, think about the uh, reproductive rights cases which talk in terms of privacy. Uh, think about the, the Transportation Security Administration. Uh, it's a, so to, to some, it's, it's referred to as a privacy problem that they can't travel without handing over a good deal of information, uh, both, both through their airlines or their, uh, the, uh, their travel agents, or directly when the background checks are done based on the ID that you hand over. There are privacy issues there with whether you have the authority to move about the country as you wish. The, the, the dimension of, of privacy that I, that I think is really motivating a lot of the legislation that you see is a sort of European sense, uh, and, and there it's often referred to as dignity, but I think maybe the more precise uh, way of talking about it is anti-objectification. Um, there is a cultural strain, I think it's stronger in Europe, but it does exist in the United States, that uh, objects to 
people being treated as mere objects of commerce. So you are, especially in the online environment, it's clear that uh, s people out there want to sell things to you. And if they know more about you, they can sell these things to you. They aren't terribly interested in your life story. They want to know whether you're interested in a golf vacation in Florida or not, full stop. And, and so they treat, they think of people, these, the, the advertisers, they do think of people as objects of commerce. And I think there is a, a strain in privacy, one that I don't feel strongly about, but one that really exists, where that, that offends the sense that of a person's basic dignity to be objectified in that way as just an object of, of commercial uh, uh, appeal. And that, I think, is what motivates a lot of the legislation you see where the advertise, advertising is seen as a problem that needs to be addressed. Do people know enough about this? Perhaps they should get a notice. There should be a required notice that information is being collected, and it will be used to advertise. Uh, perhaps people should be able to access all the information that has been collected on them so that they can determine whether or not they'll be objectified in this way, so on and so forth. Again, uh, I, think it, I think it reaches a goal that some people have, an interest that some people have strongly, but that other people don't have at all. Um, listen in, in discussions of privacy for the w use of the word harm. Privacy harm is done when information is collected and used this way. Well, um, it's often law professors using the word harm, and law professors should probably know better than to say privacy harm when they don't mean a harm that actually would be recognized in a court as something harmful. Uh, there are harms are economic damages. There can be emotional or psychological harms, but they usually require a physical manifestation. They need to reach a certain level. Not just worry about what's happening with information, but actual uh, trauma that causes some kind of physical manifestation. Um, that is a harm. And so you see, you, you hear the word harm used a lot in these debates without reference to anything that's actually legally recognized as a harm. I'm open to the idea in future of there being some, uh, you know, recognition of, of a right against these privacy harms. But we need to have a very long and very careful discussion about that because we can actually cut off a lot of the economic benefits of the Internet if we too easily class things like collection of information or, or uh, unknown collection of information as harmful in, the, in that legal sense of the word. There are, there are harmful behaviors that, that, that you see from time to time, and you probably know well about them. The example of the uh, uploading of the sexual encounter of the student at Rutgers University last year. That was a privacy invasion that was clear and offensive to, to any person who, who learned about the facts. And so you do see that there are privacy invasions, real privacy invasions, that do real harm. And that's harm. Uh, the, the question about whether uh, someone has picked up the fact that I'm interested in a golf vacation in Florida, that's far down the scale of things that one might worry about as harms. So. Defining the culture is, is the problem that Congress would take on in passing, in passing privacy legislation. So that's why I think it's so important to recognize why the, why the problem is squishy, why the creepy factor is not really a very good basis on which, on which to uh, pass legislation and regulation. I'll, I'll air out a couple uh, differences, of, differences I had with, uh, with Larry's paper and differences maybe in emphasis. Uh, one is the question of property, and we went back and forth. It might be entertaining to concatenate all the discussion back and forth between us because he says, no property, no property, never mind that. Use licensing. And I said, Larry, what's licensing? But a use of property. And so we, we might, we might uh, not today, go around, and, and many more people than just us, go around for a long time figuring out about how, how you might use property 
as a mental or legal construct to figure out the, the way that we protect our privacy. I'm, I slightly favor property as a, as a construct, as a way for, of thinking about this, but one must emphasize that it is possible to abandon property. And so unlike physical goods, which we tend to hang on to, lots of information goods that we produce, uh, those we abandon from the moment we create them. So the words I'm speaking to you, the look of my face, the shine of my forehead, these are all facts about me that, that you get to observe, and I'm essentially abandoning them to you. It's still property, but it's an item of, of abandoned property. Uh, I have no rights in it. Uh, you can say all the mean things about, about me that you want to later, and I, I have no legal recourse. Um, but please don't. That's all I can ask. In tone, Larry sometimes talks in the paper about the uneconomic uses of information or uneconomic privacy demands that people make. And I'm a little bit more in favor of privacy even when it's inefficient. So there's a few, a few times he says things, you know, people, you know, are really not, not being um, that smart when they, withhold, when, they, when they withhold certain information. And I'm a fan of privacy for any reason or no reason. So I know that I have some peculiar privacy behaviors. I uh, withhold cookies from websites that I don't regularly interact with. That takes a little something away from the, the genuinely beneficial advertising environment. But I get, I get hedonic benefit, I think the economists would call it. I like the sense of having control over what information is collected about me. It's an imperfect control, but it's some sense of control that there's a, a network I've never heard of, an advertising network I've never heard of, doesn't get to recognize me the second, third, and fourth time that it, that it sees me surfing online. I often use uh, a false telephone number at the grocery store to uh, to get the the benefit of the uh, of the uh, the discount without actually um, handing over the information, and so. Um, Safeway believes that my dad is a wonderfully ordinary shopper in California, but that he occasionally comes to California, or rather comes to D.C. and buys incredibly huge amounts of alcohol. Strange man, <laughs> strange man. But that's but that's me, uh, sort of monkey wrenching the the data collection the data collection process uh, because it gives it, it gives me hedonic benefit. It doesn't it doesn't materially benefit me, really. Uh, and it does take just a little, a little bit away from the information uh, environment that uh, that the grocery store is trying to build, so that they can serve the consumer better. Uh, tough kid. That's that's me uh, asserting my own privacy interests as I will. So um, there's a lot to think about and a lot to learn. And I've never seen a piece of legislation that figures this out. Um, most protections for privacy don't have the name privacy in them. Property laws protect your privacy because so, you can withdraw inside your home and pull the curtains, and what goes on inside is private. Uh, the law of battery means that when you put on your clothes in the morning, somebody else can't come up to you and take them off you, and the, this protects your privacy. Usually the statutes that are aimed at protecting privacy are doing something else. You'll hear about the fair information practices, notice, choice, access, and security. I like the way Larry thinks about these things and the way he talked about them at the outset here of this hour. Uh, 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 saying that uh, um, that that these problems are 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 squishy. It's about creepy. Uh, it's cultural, and there's no law that is going to dictate what our culture should be. So, my endorsement. Thank you, Larry, and thank you. Thanks to all of you. Well, actually, so my only observation was as as, as Jim is talking about. Uh, how he games the system in some sense. I'm thinking, oh, he's a, he's a true frontiersman. Uh, this is this is sort of you know he's, he's exerting his uh, 
his American individualism. Uh, and actually, I talk about that in, this, in the context of the proportionality of information exchange. So actually, the grocery store shouldn't be asking you for your phone number because it's not relevant to the transaction that we're talking about. I mean, we don't, there, there was no agreement that they would call me. The agreement was that they would give me discounts and give me coupons in exchange for knowing what I bought. But I didn't say you could call me. And so, in fact, if they asked for the phone number, I wouldn't give it to them either. And I think the same thing happens on websites. If I look at what they're asking, and if you know, you ask me for my credit card when I'm buying something, okay, that makes sense. If you ask me for my credit card, you know, when I'm signing up for an email newsletter, uh, clearly there's there's something wrong with that transaction, and I will object to it or I will reject it uh, also. Uh, but you're quite right. There is a sort of there there is a there is a personal value, an economic value to gaming the system. Uh, of course, one thing to note about that is if everybody did that, then the, the value of the, the, the composite information, which is, back, frankly, that's where the real value is, by the way, for the manufacturers and the stores. They don't really care, you know, Jay Harper or whatever name you use, what you buy, but they want to be able to group you with similarly situated people in your zip code or your age group or whatever it is. And, of course, if all the data is bad, uh, then, then they're not going to get very good results, and the result will ultimately be your discounts will go down because it's not the system isn't isn't working effectively. But there's tremendous amount for, for uh, fine. There's tremendous amount of room for inefficiency and still make things better than they are with no information, which is how the stores have operated up until the the point of these uh, of these loyalty cards being introduced, or the, even the the very data collection of the cash register, which you know used to be completely analog, and therefore there was no information whether it was associated with particular people or not. There wasn't even any inventory information. So every time we add a new layer of information collection, the overall supply chain just gets that's much more efficient, and you know it'll never be perfectly efficient. There'll always be people like you messing with it. And frankly, you know, at this point, the, the, most companies uh, who collect this information, their big problem isn't its accuracy. Their big problem is that they don't really have the analytic tools to do what they could do with it anyway. So they talk, in, you know, in my other life as, a, as, a, as an IT consultant in Silicon Valley, I mean, one of the things we always talk about is the, the so-called data warehouse. And it's aptly named. Uh, because it's just a storage place for tons and tons of transactional information that gets collected with the expectation or the hope that we'll be able to put it to some good use, but by and large it doesn't get put to use any use at all, and it just takes up space and it you know costs money to warehouse it, and uh, and it ages very rapidly and loses value very rapidly, and most of the, I think you know the best kind of case stories we can tell are uh, about companies who figured out something they could do with their data warehouse that a competitor hadn't yet figured out. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, even after however many years we've had of kind of the data processing revolution in business and billions, trillions of dollars invested in IT systems, the truth is that, that most uh, companies don't make particularly effective use of the information they've collected anyway. Uh, and a lot of those systems just have, have not lived up to their their potential or their promise, and, and in some ways have not paid for themselves. Unfortunately, you are bearing the cost of that as well, in the fact that, you know, if they were a more efficient supply chain, again, prices would be lower, uh, you know, other things like stuff would be where you wanted it to be, when you wanted it to be, and they would be able to predict that better. So it's, it's, it's nothing to be, uh, you know, sort of to be proud of that their systems aren't working very well. But the truth is we have tremendous amount more privacy than we think we do just because people can't use the information effectively that they've already collected. I'll, I'll stop there. 
Good. Um, welcome to open it up to questions. If anyone has a question, um, I have some in mind as well. But uh, open it up to the audience first. No? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, again, it depends if we're, you know, what kind of information that we're, we're talking about. If it's historical information that either has very little personal identity to it or no particular personal identity to it, uh, you know, we can do lots of longitudinal studies going back 30 years and, you know, if we had that data, which of course we don't because we haven't started collecting it really in earnest uh, until computer costs got, got cheap. Uh, I could think of lots of examples of, of information that would be valuable to keep, I don't know about indefinitely, but certainly longer than seven years. Uh, the reality is very little data is kept that long because, again, the cost of storage, the cost of, of maintaining it, its, its sort of value as a, as a business tool uh, ages so quickly that, that uh, there's, there's very little of it that anybody would sensibly keep unless they just forgot to, to purge it, but the likelihood of it being referenced again uh, in any transactional sense is, is very low. So I, I think in some sense the answer is yes, but it's a natural phenomenon, not, not one that we actually have to, 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 you know, establish a sort of fixed amount of time for particular classes of information and then enforce that. I, I think it sort of that's the way it works now, um, almost, almost exclusively, but, but just on its own merits. The, the, uh, agreed uh, with Larry. It's, uh, the, the correct answer is yes, there should be time limits. But they're they're each context specific. What when some when a piece of information becomes irrelevant? I think of a some years ago, Monster.com, the the website for job searching, uh, got big or got enough money to spend a lot of money on Super Bowl ads. One of the two, and people were touching base with me. What about when you upload your resume and years later that same resume is still available to people? Uh, what if your high school GPA is still with you when you're when you reach 30 years old? And I thought then, and I think maybe it's been borne out by time, that, that if people are making decisions based on really old information, they're going to make bad decisions. Good decision makers winnow out the irrelevant, irrelevant information. So aging of information is a natural process, and, and the time frames will come out. Yeah, so there's, there's expungement. My, you'll, you'll be interested in my Fair Credit Reporting Act paper, I think, because the FCRA um, took what, is what would be a natural process of winnowing out old information and irrelevant information and made it into an articulate regulatory process. So there's that seven-year deadline. Well, maybe it's worth knowing about bankruptcies for 10 years. Could we could we wring a little bit more efficiency out of the system and, and not cause loans to be given by we, I mean the, the lenders, um, not loan to people who are bad credit risks so that people who are good credit risks get better uh, interest rates than others. I would rather have these decisions made in in that in that marketplace where they're forged by profit and loss on the on, a, on the parts of the, the folks making those decisions. A thing I came across that, that I found very interesting in discussion of credit reporting in its early history is that a lot of credit reporting was based on really bad uh, and, and now clearly inappropriate bases, like uh, looking at the, the character of the home. And if the character of the home was uh, two men living together, well, this was a suggestion that there was some kind of perversion going on, and that would make them a bad credit risk. Um, clearly wrong, we know in the modern day. And if, if it hadn't been uh, sort of pushed out of the system 
by fair credit reporting regulation. I think it almost certainly would have been by analysis. That is the fact that now we know that that today uh, gay men and gay people tend to have higher disposable income than others because uh, they less often have children to raise. And they tend to be, you know, uh, at least out gays tend to be uh, well, better educated than, than most and all these other factors actually make them a better credit risk than otherwise. So let's let these things, that's, you know, that's touchy, a touchy subject every which way, but, uh, but let, let these systems um, figure out the right answers um, on time limit and on w which are the appropriate factors for decision making. Thanks for the question. Any other questions? I have one. I, it strikes me that um, in the past, a lot of folks have talked about the self-regulatory model and what, you know, uh, which is a confusing concept because what incentive does a business have on its own to, to really restrict unless you see things like we've seen across the Internet uh, with a number of companies where uh, the public either starts stops using their product uh, they get um, attacked uh, in the media for being creepy. Uh, they say that they're being creepy, which is sometimes a problem. Um, but it, it, it strikes me that, it's, that the law has almost started working itself out. Well, the, the quote-unquote problem of, of the privacy crisis has started almost working itself out organically in the sense that um, Facebook, for example, will create uh, a forum for people to discuss concerns and engage with Facebook staff, uh, and they'll adjust their terms of service accordingly. And we see a lot of people uh, complain about Instagram, and Instagram adjusts their ter their terms of service. Um, so do we really need a whole legal framework even to do a, a um, uh, an information licensing sort of model? or? Is the public interaction with companies uh, for whom they use the products of, is that enough right now in the place of the FTC not doing too much on this and Congress not doing too much that, that is actually sorting out these problems really in the market in, 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 in its own way? Yeah, so, I mean, for, first of all, let's just acknowledge the reality, of course, that, that the, the market is, ain't perfect by a long shot. And it's, it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't solve problems instantaneously. It often doesn't solve problems perfectly, and it often sometimes doesn't solve the problem at all. Um, but I think, by and large, at least, you know, m from my perspective, again, as, as someone who comes from an IT background and, and has, you know, worked with companies for my whole career building these kinds of systems, uh, I think, in fact, one significant change that has happened is that essentially now consumers do have uh, leverage that they didn't have. In fact, that leverage that is more like proportional to what they should have, but they didn't have the tools to self-organize, they didn't have the technology. And one of the ironies of, of sort of the, the privacy story is that the tools that they've got now are from the social networks, and of course they often turn those tools against the social networks uh, when they're unhappy about something. And there's also, you know, there's very much the risk of kind of mob rule, by the way, on, on this too. By and large, you know, consumers uh, when they've acted, when they've objected to terms of service changes or, or new products that, that just seem to go too far, too fast. In the paper, I give the example of uh, something LinkedIn did that they were forced to kind of step back from. Um, you know, by and large, c consumers are, are voicing their opinion sensibly, rationally, or economically. Not always. Sometimes they, they misread it or they overreact. And, but the important point is you get the response now. And I think, you know, again, it's not perfect and it's not the most efficient, but on the other side of it, if you're comparing it to uh, a regulatory solution, which obviously has its own costs and in many cases 
changes very slowly. It's, uh, enforcement can be very expensive. The error can be regulatory. Can, all the things that we know historically can go wrong with legislative solutions simply have to be put on the scale. And I think there are times, and Jim gave a great example of kind of what I would think of as sort of a persistent, irrational use of information in his example about, you know, uh, was it insurance or credit? Credit. Credit for, for gays. But you can think, well, you know, in one way what we're saying here is there's a, there's a real market failure. And it's identifiable, it's persistent, uh, it's narrow, and we can craft a solution where the benefits of solving it aren't greater than the costs associated with the solution itself. We've got lots of those in, in historical sense. Uh, discrimination, insurance, or, or jobs, or other things having to do with age, race, uh, ethnicity, sexual. These are irrational. These are, you know, taking facts, useful personal information, accurate, true information, but using it irrationally. And if that happens for a long enough period of time, uh, and the market doesn't seem to correct it, then absolutely it's the opportunity for, uh, you know, a, a carefully crafted, minimal transaction cost legislative solution, and we've got lots of examples of that, age discrimination laws, sexual discrimination laws, uh, you know, age discrimination in education, and so on, uh, disability laws, and so on, where we've said, okay, here's, here's accurate, truthful, personal information that is persistently being used irrationally by the, and the market is not solving the problem, and here's a solution where it certainly has costs, but those costs are not, uh, don't, we don't think will exceed the benefit of, of a legislative solution. So in the in the discussion, I should I, I should note that I always think the market would work better than than the legislative solution. So I would differ with Larry on some of those some of those details, but but uh, that can be sorted out another time. So so what direction should the marketplace go? A neat thing that is happening is that occasionally we're able to recognize when a business makes a mistake and and run, runs into a dead end. Google Buzz and and other product attempts on the part of some of the biggies. What we rarely see are the are the attempts by the smaller entrants that fail. Um, the most powerful, one of the most powerful forces in the marketplace is shunning or 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 ignoring bad offerings. And so there are plenty of offerings. I suppose you could put it this way: that are even worse for privacy, that that cross a line, and the public just ignores the thing and it goes away unheralded. Makes it hard for advocates of markets to say that the marketplace is working because so rarely do we see this. Uh, the, the challenge is is to find a neutral arbiter for what's supposed to result. And it's very easy if you if you're not looking, if you, especially if you're avoiding looking, to say that this is not that the whole system is a failure and we need the government to step in and decide how the processes are going to work. And I think notice is is a great example now a decade old that essentially hasn't worked. It's good to know uh, for for some, there are a few people and a few organizations that are particularly interested in what the privacy or information policies of a given product are. But far from uh, anything more than uh, a half a percent of consumers ever look at privacy policies on websites. And so in California, you have a law that mandates privacy notices to be linked to on websites. And I found it particularly ironic that, uh, that Google, under pressure from the state of California, had to put a link, a hyperlink, to its privacy policy on its homepage, Google being a search engine, which got us away from the pages that were covered with links. Um, many of you are too young to remember when the portal was the big was the big thing online, and it was a page with a thousand links on it. You'd have to go through. Okay, there's all the links about finance. There's all the links about movies, and so on and so forth. Well, 
Google had a very clean, pure, white page that, that was empty except for that search box, but they had to go and add an extra link at the behest of California. Nobody reads those privacy policies. There are more mistaken clicks on that link than purposeful clicks on that link, I guarantee you. But that, so that was the government's attempt to, to let's, let's, let's make this an articulate process rather than letting it be cultural. Um, the new, the, and, and that's because people in government not really looking at this problem carefully said, well, we're the best arbiter of how this is supposed to come out. Um, these days, the FTC works as, as, a, as an arbiter of how things are supposed to come out. And it's not too aggressive, but it's always kind of putting its thumb on the scale, saying we believe it's supposed to end up this way. So we're going to go and put pressure uh, using, using the threat of coercion more than actual coercion. We're going to go and put pressure on the market to send it in the direction we prefer. Um, that's just a small number of people who don't have the knowledge they need, thinking that they do have the knowledge they need to guide the society and guide the market. Yeah, I, I, so that raises an interesting point about about notice and what's often referred to as transparency. And I, don't, you know, I don't have a strong, violent reaction to more notice and more transparency. The problem is that there, there, you know, sort of too much notice and too much transparency actually becomes counterproductive. The last time I, I live in California. The last time I refinanced my mortgage, I, you know, I sort of said, well, let's as an experiment, let's actually look at the documents that are required. And Larry's it, got a lot of time on his hands. I do. I, that's true. <laughs> uh, and it's some 150 pages, uh, literally, of paper. If you add it up, it's about 120,000 words, which is you know, a couple novels worth of stuff. And the fact of the matter is there's some really important information in there, but you could never find it. And, and the problem is every, you know, it said, well, we, you know, we, we really should add a, you know, a seismic disclosure. We really should add a disclosure about, you know, you're allowed to rescind this in three days. You really should have a disclosure about how we did credit check on you. And all these things seemed like good ideas at the time. But when you add them up, the cumulative effect is a stack of documents which no one, there is not one single person I can imagine, other than me, who would actually have read them all the way through, and more to the point, who would have found the important stuff that was buried on, you know, page page 50 or page 60. We're sort of getting to that point now in, in the kind of the, the, the privacy policy uh, in terms of websites where the FTC has encouraged, again, largely self-regulated, uh, but as Jim says, with a fair amount of coercion, uh, to encourage more and more disclosure. And every time something goes wrong and someone says, oh, well, that wasn't disclosed, all right, well, we'll add another disclosure, you know, sort of after the horses have left, we're going to close the barn door. Again, I don't have a, I don't have a, a violent response to this, but I, I do note that it eventually, if not sooner than later, becomes counterproductive to the actual point we're trying to get, which is meaningful disclosure, and that's much, much harder to do. You know, the, 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 the fire hose is easy. The meaningful disclosure is, is much more difficult. When I go think about, think about what consumers want to know, Using the best evidence available, which is market evidence, that is that is that is information that's produced by the contest among among participants. Uh, a thing that consumers always want to know is price. Right? Try go to a grocery store and, and look around. You'll see that price is always prominently displayed. Some consumers are sometimes recycling. You know, con recycled content is something that that's a that's a feature people want to know about. Um, watch for what what is produced by the actual by the actual marketplace. Nutrition labels are often used as an example of how we could we could model our, our privacy protection on that. But I think better information, more useful, is is on the front of the label. And there was an example some years ago. I came across a little package of carrots that had a picture of a cornucopia spilling out with fruits and vegetables, and it said at the top, five a day, little sunshine, little sunshines coming off the top of that display. I think that was probably as important 
for communicating information to consumers as the nutrition label on the back. Smarty Pants is like us, and I include everyone in this room because we're all in the Smarty Pants category. We might go and look at the nutrition labels and make some decisions based oh, this is high in carbohydrates compared to what I thought it was or, or not, not high enough in calories compared to what I wanted to eat. Um, I know that's – anyway. Uh, most people, most people are, are picking up stuff and going, oh, yeah, I should probably eat some vegetables and doing it that way with the quick, uh, the quick visual information cue rather than the intellectual's articulate chart on the back. How do you communi communicate with consumers? It's not an easy problem to solve, and not one that should be solved at the top, I don't think. All right, well, we're uh, well past the 1 o'clock mark, so we'll end it there. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I encourage you to all to pick up a copy of this paper uh, and uh, in the back uh, some of Larry's uh, proposed solutions. Uh, we also have some papers from Jim uh, Harper, who um, uh, has written on a number of topics related to this out at the table outside as well. Thanks for all for coming.